0: Our scripture reading today is going to be Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 through 5. If you would join me, Colossians 2, verses 1 through 5, as I read this aloud. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love
1: Well, I'm just going to ask you this question. Has has God ever done something to you to humble you? That happened to me this week, and I'm going to explain it, and it will also answer a question that some of you have. Um, I gr- Growing up, I loved baseball. It was my favorite sport. My parents are here today. They can attest to that. I love playing baseball. Um, it was just something that I enjoyed. As I got to be an adult, I started playing softball. Loved that as well. Um, was... Uh, Decent at it, and uh, but over the last few years, about six years ago, I stopped playing softball because of my arthritis. Uh, it just was uh, the next day I was in pain for the rest of the week, and so it was kind of pointless for me to play. This year, my son is playing, and so I'm driving him. And this, this, you know, when I'm not there, there's not a desire to play. But when I'm there, suddenly it's like I really want to get out there and play. And so I've been sitting there watching all summer. Uh, all season, and, and this past Friday, um, and I'm not throwing anyone under the bus, but someone came to me and said, would you uh, want to hit, just bat, that's all you got to do, and I said, yeah, I can do that, and I got up, and I struck out, which I don't think I've ever done in softball, so that was embarrassing, and then my last time up, I got a hit, and I turned, and as I was running to, running to first, something happened in my foot, I have no idea what it is. Um, it hurt, and um, so um, if you're wondering why I'm limping, that's why. There is no pain today, so as I'm standing here, there is not pain. It's just swelled up, probably double its size, and so it's a little awkward. And so as I walk, so you wonder, if you see me limping, that's why. I felt like it would be good to explain this story once, not 150 times. So uh, thank you for understanding that. Um, also, I just want to mention one thing. I want to encourage you to be here tonight. Um, due to uh, just a lot of different things going on. We haven't had a Sunday night in a while, a Sunday night service, I should say, and so I want to encourage you to be here tonight. We have a special uh, um, things going on tonight. Uh, First of all, our kids are going to have their own class. Teens will have their own meeting. But for the adults, we'll meet upstairs, and tonight we're going to have two missionary reports. Uh, Ken James is going to talk about his recent mission trip to Uganda, so I'm um, excited about that. He has a video to show and some pictures and just going to tell us about the trip. And then after that, we're going to have a young lady, uh, Lindsay Kalk. Some of you may remember her. Lindsay uh, went to our school. We had a school. She went from kindergarten all the way through 12th grade, graduated from here, and God has called her to Honduras, and she is going to come and share what uh, God is already doing in her life. And so I encourage you to be back to hear both of those tonight. As I said, we'll be upstairs And uh, so I know you'll uh, enjoy that time. Colossians chapter 2 verses 1 through 5 is our text for this morning. Uh, We live in a time of unprecedented widespread deception. From identity theft to phone scams, uh, people are constantly trying to deceive. We as a church understand this uh, we often get you know, knocked at the door from people that want help and, and at times our, our heart breaks for them and other times we're skeptical whether they're telling the truth and uh, many times they are trying to deceive and many times we have caught them in that. When identity, identity thieves get your credit card numbers, they can print up phony cards and, and take out cash and run up bills in your name. When when they steal your social security number, they can file a tax return and steal your refund. Telephone scammers prey on everyone, especially the elderly. One of the biggest scams, I don't know if you are familiar with this one now, is thieves who will pose as agents of the IRS and they will call you and they will tell you that you have not paid back taxes and if you don't pay them, they will either arrest you or seize your properties and so they ask for your credit card number over the phone. If you ever get one of those, don't respond. Another one, popular one, that's now uh, becoming more popular is they will call posing as employees of a tech company that tells you your computer has a virus and they need to access your computer remotely and, and they can help you that and all they need you to do is give them all your passwords so they can successfully fix the problem. And for a small fee, they will give you a year's worth of support so that it never happens again. A few years ago, my wife and I were looking to buy a car. And we had checked locally and didn't really find a whole lot that we, we liked. And so um, I went on, I don't even remember what the search was. I went online to something and I got in contact with this guy who had this car that seemed too good to be true. And so I was immediately already skeptical, but I thought I'd pursue it. Uh, and I asked the guy, I said, can I look at the car? No, sorry, it's in Seattle, Washington. okay. Well, I have a friend that lives in Seattle, Washington, and so I said to him, "Hey, I have a friend that lives in Seattle. Could I have him go look at the car?" And he goes, "Well, no, it's in storage and I live somewhere else." Hmm. But if you if I send you the car, I'll send you the car and if and if you don't like it, I'll return your money. Sure you will. And I looked it up and realized it was it was a scam. And thankfully I caught that. But I, as I was reading online, I found there many people who had fallen for it. And while these schemes can cost people financially, what we're going to talk about today is spiritual deception that can lead to a person's eternal ruin. Satan has been employing these dis- deceptive lies since the garden. Paul warns of this in, in, in 2 Corinthians. He says this, but I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray by his, with, from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. And, and what Paul is warning to the church in Corinth and is the idea of what he's talking about here to the church at Colossae is, is be careful because Satan is trying to trick you. Satan has used false Uh, teachers in in cults today to lure many people away from the true gospel that the apostles preached. These groups prey on unsuspecting and untaught people in churches today. They use the Bible to claim uh, that Jesus is their Savior, but they deny truths such as Trinity and Deity and, and the substitutionary atonement of Christ. And they tragically lead people to damnation. Now we've already talked about this in our study of Colossians, but uh, I want you to understand that what why Paul was writing this is because false teachers were threatening this church. They were threatening them with with uh, teaching that wasn't true, and it was mingled in with with teaching that they knew, and so it was confusing to them. Now I believe, based on the way Paul wrote, that he probably that this this group had probably not gained a lot of followers. Uh, and, and i believe that because over and over again he talks about how he appreciates their steadfastness and and so i believe that they hadn't gained a lot of followers but still they were trying to and they were mingling themselves in at like wool, wolves and sheep's clothing and they were trying to do and we see this in down in verse four he says i say this in order that no one may delude you that was his fear so I want to sum up what Paul says in these five verses just simply with this phrase, this sentence. We, we avoid spiritual deception by being committed to a loving, Christ-centered church. And I want to pursue this topic of spiritual deception. First of all, uh, three, three aspects we want to look at, and this one's pretty simple, but first of all, to avoid spiritual deceit, you must realize it's possible. A few years ago, um, I was here at church doing a Bible study with a, a number of young people and my wife was at home and I get a panic phone call and a, an armed man had broke into our house um, and my wife was there. Now we believe that it was either one of a couple possibilities. Either he wasn't all with it or he, he went to the wrong house because as soon as he saw her, he ran. But you know, as I was driving home, my whole world kind of flipped upside down and after that that tragic event it it changed how I viewed so many things it changed how I viewed my neighborhood it changed how I did what I did Uh, after that I was more careful about locking the door checking my on my wife when I was gone Uh, I never worried about those sort of things prior to that but after that I I was constantly on the alert everywhere I went and, and still to this day I'm more alert than I was before See, here's the thing. If you're unaware of potential danger, you, you are not, you're not on guard and you're more likely to fall prey. And, and I wasn't aware of potential danger and so therefore I wasn't on guard, but now I am more. And the and, and same thing is true because, uh, with spiritual deception, but the problem with spiritual deception is, is it's more subtle. Satan doesn't come powering through the front door uh, holding a gun and saying, I'm going to trick you. He has other ways. In fact, Paul says Satan is the angel of light. He doesn't come in a red suit with a a pitchfork, laughing in some wicked way. No, he comes as an angel of light. And and he offers greater light. And really, that's what Paul's addressing here, because the the, the false teachers in Colossae, that's what they were doing, is they were saying... "Ah, you know what, we have something even better. And they were falling prey to it. And, and, and the servants of Satan, it says, are, are servants of righteousness, promising freedom while innerly enslaving us by various lusts. In our text, Paul warns us, he says, as I read just a few moments ago, he says, do not let yourself be diluted with plausible arguments. That idea there of plausible are, are um, persuasive arguments. You know, it's very easy if we're not careful, if we're not in the Word of God today, to, be bought, to buy in to arguments that the world's philosophy teaches us that are not biblical. It's amazing uh, in our world today how many false teachers there are. Now, we don't usually use that term, false teachers, and so because of that, we don't see it the same way. See, in, in Paul's day, it was, they understood, they were teaching, they claimed to have a holier view than the apostles, and so uh, they have more to offer, and, and they must be more holy than the apostles because of their self-abasement and their, the severe treatment of their body and rules and guidelines that they have, and they were promoting a religion that feeds on pride, not the message of the cross. But it's amazing how many different false teachers still prey on God's people today. I saw an article recently about a Bible study group that's meeting in Colorado. Um, this is kind of an interesting Bible study group. They, they meet, and uh, what it was, was it was started by a woman who uh, was, was disinterested in religion, and she thought religion was filled with a bunch of hypocrites and didn't have anything to offer, so she started this. I'll give you the name of it, and I think it'll clearly help you understand what the idea of this Bible study is. It's called the Stoner's Bible Study. If you still haven't figured it out yet, what the idea is, is that each Bible study, before they began their Bible study, they would come together and they would uh, smoke pot until they were completely out of their minds. And then they would say, hey, before when we studied in the traditional setting in church, it was always boring to us and we never understood. But now when we smoke pot, we see new insights and the Bible becomes more interesting. Yes, because you're not with it. Now that's extreme, okay? Probably most of you aren't 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 going to get caught up in that. But I guarantee you, within the last uh, month or two, or maybe it's been a year, you've got a knock at your door from someone who is from a religion that is not teaching Jesus Christ. Oh, it sounds right. A lot of what they say sounds very much like what we hear from Scripture, but yet they're adding to Scripture, and, and they're taking away from the teaching of the Gospel. And, and, and many people are listening to it and it sounds plausible. But it's not the Word of God we need to be careful of that. Or, or even go, even maybe say, ah, I, I can see through those people, but even go a step further and we, you, you, there's seeker-sensitive churches that, that do anything to avoid mentioning anything negative such as judgment or sin, avoiding those topics to make the seekers feel more com- comfortable. Rather, rather than explain and apply the Word of God, they'll do things that entertain like show movie clips and give self-help messages on how you can succeed in your careers and what, what you can do to be a happy person and have a happy life life and they, they picture god as this good old guy uh that on the journey is our life coach who helps us through and re- roots us on and even when we sin he's there by our side treating us like his buddy but if we're not careful we're oblivious to the fact that what we're doing is we're being deceived by the devil and we're falling prey to his schemes the first thing we need to understand, what Paul was trying to get them to understand, is he says this in that verse 4. He says, I don't want anyone to delude you. He, he didn't say, hey, these are going to be obvious things. No, the idea of plausible arguments means I don't want anyone to trick you by giving you something that looks good. I want you to beware. So how then do we avoid being deceived by these plausible arguments? And that's what the rest of this this text is about. And so let's look at that. Two main things. And I want to look at the first one here. To avoid spiritual deceit, be committed to a loving church. Now we've already talked about this as we've gone through Colossians, but Paul uh, most likely was not, prior to writing this, was never in Colossae. So he had not physically met these individuals. He did not know them. Yet it's very clear as we read through Colossians that he had a love for them. We see this again in in verses 1 and 2. It talks about a great struggle that he has for them. We'll talk about that more in a minute. But he goes on, he says, even though I haven't seen you face to face, verse 2, but my desire is that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love. He said, my desire for you as a church is that you be a church that is surrounded in love. Uh, Paul also said that to the church at Ephesus. He said this, uh, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, you see the characteristic that flows throughout both of these texts? In both of these prayers, Paul is connecting the spiritual receiving of God's blessing with being connected in love with a fellowship of believers. Again, I, I know I've emphasized a lot this year, but that's why I believe that, uh, that you cannot grow without connection with the body here. You can try to distance yourself, but you can't. Uh, author F.F. F. Bruce said it this way. He said, Paul's Paul emphasizes that the revelation of God cannot be properly known apart from the cultivation of brotherly love within the community. In other words, what he's saying there is you cannot fully understand the word of God and and, and grasp everything without uh, being involved in your your local community, your local body, and, and your local assembly here, the church. He goes on and says this, living in a loving and forgiving community will assist growth in understanding and vice versa as truth is confirmed in practice and practice enables truth to be seen in action and so to be fully grasped. How does that work? It's as it plays out, as truth comes into our life, we may not fully grasp it, but then we see it played out in other people's lives and we go, I get that now. And, and, and vice versa, as they see it lived out in our lives, and, and more and more as we interact together, the truth of God will be clearly seen. But what is uh, the qualities of a loving church that we see in this passage? There's three qualities that I see of a loving church. First of all, a loving church prays. I want you to notice, uh, though it doesn't directly say this, most uh, commentators believe that when Paul says in verse 1, I struggled for you, that what he meant by that was this struggle he had in prayer. Why do we think that? Well, t- turn over to Colossians chapter 4, Colossians chapter 4 and verse 12, and we will get to this in the fall, but uh, Epaphras is mentioned here, and he says uh, that they, uh, he is one of you, a servant of Jesus Christ, he greets you, remember he was with Paul. Always, and then notice what it says: always struggling on your behalf in his prayers. And there's a connection point there that that struggle is the same idea. It's the same word. It's the word that we get agonized from. In fact, the picture of this word struggle is is two wrestlers. Remember back in this day that uh, the, the what we call the Olympic Games was something that took place already, and one of the events was wrestling. And so they understood the idea of wrestling. And, and battling and straining and every fiber of the bodies were struggling to defeat their opponents. You, you, you see what Paul is saying there? He says, you know, if you're in a loving church, you're going to be a people who are, who are desperately in prayer for one another. And I get, I get two simple things from this, and these are not in your notes, but two simple things for this. First of all, if you love people, you will pray for them. You will pray for them. If they're on your hearts, you will take them often before God's throne, asking him to protect them from the snares of the devil. I want to encourage you with something. And I've encouraged this before, but I want to encourage it again. I want to to encourage you to somehow get a list of the people in our church. If you need to do that, come to the office. If you don't have a directory, do that. And Maybe there's people that have been added. We're looking to the potential of doing another directory sometime in the future. But uh, get the list of the people in this church and begin to praying for them. You say, I don't know anyone. You know what you'll find out as you begin to praying through the list of the people in the church? You might see names and you're like, I have no idea who that is. But your, your heart will be knit to them. And then one Sunday you'll be walking around church and you'll come and bump into someone and you'll say, what's your name? And they'll tell you and you go, oh, I've been praying for you for a long time. And suddenly this person who you had no idea who they were, you are suddenly connected to them. I, I, if if you are a person who who was a part of this body a a, a characteristic of a person who loves people is one who's going to pray for them and i challenge you to do that i am so thankful that there are prayer warriors in this church that tell me they pray for me every week but and i appreciate that and i I want you to I don't want to tell you i'm taking it for granted but i want you to understand pray for others as well pray the second thing though out of that though is that from what we see in this passage, is, as Paul used the word struggle, it implies something. It implies to me that praying for others is not always easy. It's not always easy. And that's why I think we quit. That's why we, I think we don't always do it because man, it's hard. It's hard to sit there and pray for other people. If you find praying for others to be difficult, you're not alone. I believe even Paul was saying he struggled. So a loving church is a church that prays for each other. But secondly, a loving church cares. Now I, think, I think if you're praying, you're going to automatically start caring. But Paul's heart... Of concern for these new believers oozes throughout the text of Colossians as he speaks, and, and he wants their hearts to be encouraged with one another as they're knit together. We're going to talk more about that phrase in a little bit, but that idea of knit together, he says, I, I want there to be this sense of when one hurts, all hurt. When one is in pain, the others feel it. When one is involved in something, the others connect with that, and it's, it's not no longer just a surface connection. It's no longer just, hey, you come into church, how you doing? Well, I'm doing good, good, I'm doing too. When really inside, you are torn apart. You had a horrible week. But you know what I find as you connect with people? As you connect with people, uh, you will begin to get past that surface, how you doing, I'm good. Not that every time they walk up to you, go, how you doing? Well, let me tell you how bad this week was. no. You're going this this is I can share with them. There's people in this church that have that have poured their life into me, and you know, when they come and say, How are you doing? and 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 then they give me that look like I don't say good because I can tell it's not true. There are people I feel that are safe that I can say, Hey, let me tell you how I'm doing. We need to be a church. A loving church cares. A loving church is not just, hey, we connect on Sundays. If this is church is going to grow for the cause of Christ, we are going to be a church that cares enough to impact and influence the lives of everyone in this church every day. doesn't mean you contact everyone in this church every day, but it means that every day you say, hey, I want to connect with the people in my church because I love them. In the, old, in, in, in the New Testament, when the churches were being begun, uh, I love what it says in Acts when it talks about they, they met together day after day after day. And it wasn't in a monotony thing like I just made it sound. It was this thing of they couldn't help it. They wanted to be together. A loving church cares Thirdly, a loving church seeks growth in others. Look back at Colossians chapter 1, verse 28. We looked at this last week, but he says, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. Our responsibilities, as I said last week, Paul's aim, our aim should be this, that we present every person complete before Christ. This is not the work just of the guy standing here behind the pulpit. This is the work of all of us that love seeks the highest good for others. And that's not just in physical issues. That's not just, oh, I see they have a need. No, that's spiritual as well. And, and, and sin destroys people. But love means that we see a brother or sister who is in sin and straying from God. We humbly go to them and gently seek to restore them to the Lord. Now I want to tell you this, though because I've seen too often where Christians, they do this third one, okay? They think it's their responsibility to tell other person, hey, you know what, you're wrong, you did this wrong, but they didn't do the first two. They haven't prayed for them, they haven't loved them, they haven't invested their life. But when you begin to pray And care and invest your life in people, and then you see that person that you love dearly, that you've been praying for, that is a part of this church, and you love them so much that it hurts to see them falling away from God. Then you go and not arrogantly but humbly say, Hey, I want to talk to you because I love you. This is wrong. It changes the whole attitude. A loving church is going to seek the growth of others, and he says that here in this passage, that as fellow Christians, we seek to do what is best. He, he talks about that here, that we, as we're knit together, we're going to reach towards the fullness of assurance. We're going to do it together. So to avoid spiritual deception, we we need to beware of the danger that there is a danger out there. But secondly, we need to be committed to a loving church. But thirdly, I want to look at, to avoid spiritual deceit, uh, we need to be committed to a Christ-centered church. Not just a loving church, a Christ-centered church. Throughout Colossians, if you have not picked up on this, throughout Colossians, the theme over and over and over again, Paul is emphasizing, is Jesus Christ. Remember in Colossians chapter 1 he talked about uh, starting in uh, verse 15 about how, how Jesus was the image of the invisible God. He was, he was God and then we look along after that and he says all things were created by him and for him and through him and everything exists because of who? Because of Jesus Christ and, and he's the theme. And, and then he goes on beyond that and he says Jesus is the head of the church. Uh, he's the one that uh, controls and, and guides and should be the one that leads this church. Christ is the center of everything. Then last week we looked at the end of uh, chapter 1 and he said this, that what's this mystery, this thing that wasn't previously known, is that because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, you can have Christ in you. And what does he say that is? That's the hope of glory. So we see throughout Colossians the theme is Christ and he continues that here. Look at chapter Uh, 2 verse 2 says that their hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love so to to reach all the riches of the full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is what? Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Paul comes back again to this theme and says that that he wants these believers to obtain unto the riches of the fullness of, the full assurance of understanding, and that happens through Christ. Clearly, as we look at Colossians, what Paul is trying to get this church to understand is that a a solid church, a godly church, is going to have Christ and the gospel at the center of everything they do. So I want to note five characteristics here, and and we will close in just a little bit here, but five characteristics of a Christ-centered church. First of all, a Christ-centered church is a spiritually Yes, it's a spiritually discerning church. I went too far here. Hang on. Something went awry here, so I'm going to give them to you because that's not supposed to be the first one. I don't know what happened. Uh, the first one is a Christ-centered church is a Bible-centered church. A Christ-centered church is a Bible-centered church. The Bible is our only source of, of knowledge and understanding about, the, uh, about Jesus Christ. The Old Testament points to Jesus. The New Testament expands on who Jesus is. Uh, There's there's an author that I've read a couple times. His name is Alec uh, Motyer. And he, he says this. He says, without the Old Testament, we could not know Jesus Christ properly. When I read that, I thought, well, no, the New Testament co- talks about Jesus Christ. We would know, but no, but think about this. In the Old Testament, what do we know about Jesus Christ? His name is not mentioned, but so what do we know about Jesus Christ? We are told that there will be one that will come that would free the people of their sins. There's this Messiah talked about over and over again. We see he's one that uh, will come and, and, and will suffer and will die. Why? For us. And so when Jesus comes on the scene... In the New Testament, oh, this is the one they're talking about. In the Old Testament, without the Old Testament, we would not know Jesus. Without the Old Testament, we would not understand our New Testament properly. In the Gospel then, uh, we go in the Gospels, and by that I mean Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they tell us uh, who Jesus is, and he took on human flesh, and the rest of the New Testament interprets the life of Christ and applies the life of Christ in everything that we see in it. So if Christ uh, is not the center of our lives, then we don't need the Bible. But if Christ is the center of our lives, then the Bible needs to be the center of our lives. Because the Bible is where we learn about Christ. If a church does not teach the Bible on a consistent basis, you will not be equipped to withstand the deceptive schemes of the devil. And that's why I've been emphasizing this over the last number of months that I challenge you to get deeper into the word. Because if you're not deep into the Word of God, if you don't study it and know it and apply it, you will not be able to stand up against the schemes. And that is why I feel there is so many Christians being swept away today. Because they're not standing true on, on the Word of God. The second thing is the one up there. Somehow it got skipped. But B, a, a Christ-centered church is a spiritually discerning church. talks in this passage about understanding and knowledge and wisdom and Uh, The idea of wisdom is discernment, uh, but I I believe discernment is is a missing commodity in many modern churches today. If you advocate discernment, you're accused of being judgmental or intolerant. I remember reading about a pastor recently who was told by his church that he could not preach on issues like abortion, transgenderism, premarital sex because the Bible did not address them so he needed to keep his mouth closed on those topics. And I disagree. The Bible is clear on those topics. Now I agree there are some secondary matters where we must not be dogmatic but too often uh, we're we're not dogmatic on things we should be dogmatic on. And I agree that when we're dogmatic on issues that are hard, issues that are controversial, issues that, that, that impact lives, I, I, I agree we need to be kind and gracious how we do it. We can't be arrogant. can't be mean-spirited. We've got to be loving. But I strongly disagree that we must be tolerant and accept diverse views on clear biblical doctrine. Without sound doctrine and biblically-based discernment, God's people are going to be carried away by every wind of doctrine. And that is what's happening in way too many churches today. They're being deceived. Well, does the Bible really say this? Yes, the Bible really does. And we need to be teaching the Bible. We need to be understanding the Bible. Thirdly, a Christ-centered church is growing to understand the treasures of wisdom. Paul says that this full assurance from underst- comes from understanding and knowing God's mystery. And what is God's mystery? God's mystery is Christ. And when when Paul says that God is that Christ is God's mystery, and that all the treasures of mis- wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Him, he does not mean that they're hidden in the sense that we can't find them. He does not mean as as the False teachers were teaching in Colossae. They were teaching that there was this second level of wisdom that was reserved only for the elite inside few. And what Paul is saying is that is not true. By mystery, Paul says these are things that were formerly concealed, but now in Christ, God has revealed them. The Old Testament promised a coming Redeemer and King, but the specifics were blurry. You know, they would look at it and they'd say, I, "I don't, I don't fully understand that." Yes, there's a redeemer, this king's going to come, and, and they were expecting something different. But what, when Jesus came, he came as the redeemer and king. Much like for us, we look at the end times, and we, you know, people love to talk about them and debate on bottom. But uh, much of the end times is is unclear for us. What what does John really mean in Revelation when he talks about some of these crazy beasts that are flying around? I don't know. In the same way, the Old Testament saints looked and said, I don't get it. But when Jesus Christ came and died on the cross, suddenly that, that, that hidden, that which is hidden was revealed. And so what he's telling us in this passage is if you want to have a full understanding of the treasures of wisdom, look at Christ. Study Christ. It takes some extra effort and diligence on our part to mine out the riches that is in Christ. It takes work. But the point is is that he is our all sufficient treasure for everything we need. Uh, one author said this, the only and I love this quote. The only safeguard against error for the Christian is a full knowledge of Christ. Next The Christ-centered church practices unity. He goes on in this text, and look at uh, verse 2 again. He says that your hearts may be encouraged being knit together in love. Sometimes this idea of knit together means instructed or taught, but here it means, literally as it sounds, it means held together. Um, It's held together together. What's interesting to me, and this is kind of what I alluded to before, but what's interesting to me is that uh, unity is not divorced from understanding uh, and true knowledge of Christ. In other words, what I mean by that is uh, it's very clear here. He says, how do you get this full assurance and understanding and knowledge of Christ and mystery in Christ? How, how do you come to full assurance of all these things? When you're knit together in love, when there's unity in the church. when there is when there's a, a common goal. Now, there are going to be things in this church that you know, we, we, we debate on. There are going to be those, those issues that you know, we might not all agree on, but we need to be unified in our understanding of the, the core biblical truths of Scripture. That we're willing to not, not only debate over uh, uh, and, and stand our ground on, but, but die for. You say, what do you mean by that? Okay, if someone comes, I'm just going to open one up there, and someone comes up to me and says, you know, I don't think uh, a Christian should ever go to the movie theater. I'm going to just be like, okay, I don't care what you think. I'm not saying I'm going or not going. It's not an issue that I'm going to die over. That's your decision. It's not mine. It's your decision what you decide. It's not mine. Now, however, if someone in the church comes up to me and says this, I don't believe that Jesus Christ is God. You and I have a sudden problem. Now, I'm going to not to get, get to a fight over, it, over that. I'm not going to pull out my fists. I mean, right now I'm hobbling along, so you just have to run and I'm, I'm in trouble. <laughs> but, I, I, but we're not going to agree on that. I'm not just going to brush that off. What I'm saying by that is we as a church need, need, need to be unified on those solid core doctrines of Scripture. We might not agree on everything, okay? You might not like the song that the worship team sang today. That's okay. As long as it's not violating the core doctrine of Scripture, which, by the way, none of it was. But as a church, we need to be unified around what matters. And here he says, how is it that you're going to get this full assurance, this full knowledge, this full wisdom? It's going to happen as you're held together in love, as you're unified. And a Christ-centered church is going to practice unity. And then finally, a Christ-centered church is going to be disciplined and stable in unity. It's faith. Look at the end of this section. Look at verse 5. Paul says, For though I am absent in the body, yet I am with you in spirit, rejoicing. Why is he rejoicing? Look what he says. Rejoicing to see your good order and the firmness of your faith in Christ. Now, good order and firmness, both of those were military terms. They were they pictured a military unit that is in battle, that is disciplined, and it's, it's in its fighting order, and, and it's closed its ranks tight enough that, that the enemy cannot get through. And he's saying there with these false teachers, he's saying, hey, I, I'm so thankful that I look at you. And that's why I, I said, I don't, know if, I don't know necessarily if these false teachers had made any, uh, any head ground with th- these people. Because he says, I, I look and he sees, and I said, I'm so thankful that you've held your ground. That you've held your formation and you're standing your ground. One author says this, the word translated good order points to a well-ordered behavior of the Colossians. He has in mind lives that are aligned with biblical revelation, daily habits of life that reflect the values of Jesus, unwavering obedience to the will of God, no matter how unpopular or how unsuccessful that might prove to be. In other words, he's saying as a church, they stood their ground. And I hope as a church we stand our ground. A Christ-centered church will be disciplined and stable in its faith. Now that word uh, firmness, uh, I just used the word stable there in the, in the thing, but that, it's another good word for it. It's the idea of stability. Now let's be honest, stability is the opposite of, of trendy, flashy, and sensational. Stable churches don't chase after wrong church growth techniques. They don't. They don't keep people hyped up with, uh, with unnecessary things. They don't promise the latest self help insight. Stable churches, well, let's be honest, stable churches are boring. And I don't mean that. I'm not saying we're boring, but what I'm saying is, is we're consistent. We're consistent in the sense that we say, hey, we're going to hold to what we believe. You may not like it. You, you may not agree with me. It may even cause me harm. But I'm going to stick with my ground. And as a church, a Christ-centered church is one that's going to be disciplined, that's the good ordered, and, and stable, that's the firmness in their faith. John MacArthur wrote a book called The Truth War, and in it he argues that faithfulness to Christ demands that we fight for the truth of the gospel. He talks about how many of the the modern churches have been swayed by the worldly influence on tolerance and and love, and because of that they've become uh, apathetic to the whole concept of truth. He says this, church leaders are obsessed with style and methodology and they're, they're losing interest in the glory of God and becoming grossly apathetic about truth and sound doctrine. And he adds this, what we desperately need today are sheep and shepherds that are, are after God's own heart who feed on the knowledge and the understanding of God. And that's what Paul was arguing for in this text. The enemy, Satan, has many servants who are trying to delude us with plausible, persuasive arguments that water down the truth about Christ. But we can avoid the spiritual deception by being committed to a loving, Christ-centered church. And I hope that's what this is, and if it's not, let's work on it. You may be the part of change. Let's be this loving, Christ-centered church that can help us keep unified, that can help us keep stable in our faith. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for this passage and we're thankful for the example of this church that battled against false teaching. And they held on to the truth. We know Paul held on to the truth. And because of that, eventually it cost him his life. And we know that, as we, as we have talked about just last week, that, that truth... And holding on to Jesus Christ, as your word tells us, may lead to hardship. But I pray you'll help us to be serious about holding on to it no matter what. Lord, if there's anyone here that's been convicted by anything from your word today, I pray that you'll help them to come to you, to make things right. Lord, if there's any here that have not placed their faith in Jesus Christ, this whole concept of Christian loving church may be unusual to them. I pray that they will come to Christ. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. If you're able, would you please join us in standing together? We'll sing Amazing Grace.
0: Amen. Um.
1: time we're going to go go into the Lord's Supper, a time when we remember what Christ did for us on the cross. I'll read to you from 1 Corinthians, where Paul reminds the church of why they were doing this, and he says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. That is a reminder of why we assemble as a church is what, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross. So at this time I'm going to ask the deacons to stand and we will distribute the bread and then followed by that, the cup. Let's pray. God, we are thankful again the opportunity we have to remember the gift that you gave us. It's not like any other gift we've ever received that your hurt, your son's pain, brought us life. So Lord, I pray that you'll help us not to forget, not to get apathetic, not to ever get caught up in other things that aren't necessarily... Uh, center around the gospel, and let's make you what matters. Lord, we just thank you, and I pray you'll help us to honor you now as we just take some time to remember what Jesus Christ did. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.